This is the American Digital Banking Podcast hosted by CBQI. CBQI are the leading providers of digital transformation for the financial markets in the Americas. With a focus on predictive artificial intelligence, DevOps, and cloud migration, we provide managed services including building, implementing, and supporting financial market systems. Today, we're joined by Matt Williamson, VP of Global Financial Services at Mobiquity. Matt is a digital banking and ESG industry expert, a speaker and thought leader, and has extensive experience in tech and product innovation, strategy, delivery, and support. Mobiquity is a digital consultancy providing end-to-end omni-channel digital consulting services to leading B2B and B2C brands. Hi, Matt. Thanks for joining us. Hi. Great to be here, Deborah. How are you? Good, thanks. Good. For the audience, could you give us a quick rundown of who you are and how Mobiquity are helping consumers? Sure. I'll try and be quite quick around the, the who I am. Um, I am uh, that classic flunked about as hard as you can out of school, uh, day one went around doing various roles, uh, working in factories and other things, and finally got my calling into technology and innovation around year 2000 with the Y2K bug, uh, where I was then working for Thomas Cook. So that's where it all started for me. Um, and then I got into disruptive technology when we became TravelX and we were taking financial service business away from the banks. I've then worked at banks, I've done startups, scale-ups, everything in between. Um, and I now am working with Mobiquity to transform digital service and financial services around the world. So at Mobiquity, my primary focus is actually on digital banking, but it also includes fintech, insurance, financial services. And part of it as well is looking at the strategies around the world and understanding the trends often before they become trends around financial inclusion, um, ESG, and now we're obviously into the world of meta and Web3, which has accelerated from nowhere in the past four months. Um, a lot of my time is actually spent removing barriers um, and frictions to ensure we can get the best possible outcome for our customers and therefore experience. Uh, and for the audience awareness, we power around 200 million digital experiences around the world, including digital first banks, transformation of existing banks um, from legacy into digital first. Um, and we're also working on meta and Web3 initiatives and considerations um, to see how we can help grow the metaverse and create real business value within it. So how do you think digital banking transformation has changed the market over the last two years? So there's two parts to this question. I think the first one is actually customer adoption of digital. So that accelerated to an unprecedented levels just because by definition, we couldn't have physical interactions anymore. Um, you know, and also across unexpected customer segmentation, um, you know, we've moved away from using digital to check social media and occasionally you know, maybe checking our balances, that kind of thing, all the way through to using um, digital services to finance cars, as I did during the pandemic, or make our banking lifestyles easier. Um, we saw in Mexico, as an example, the explosion of adoption in digital in the over 55s via digital food delivery apps, which sounds insane, but that actually was a key driver. Um, and we've now seen off the back of that, because of the expectation of how easy it was to onboard and start using a service you know, within five minutes or less, that that expectation is now transitioning towards banking services. So we're now seeing in Mexico that it's accelerating both its open banking um, opportunities, trying to leverage the use cases from the UK market, um, and also its uh, experiences for digital banking as well. Interesting. How has your customer acquisition process changed as digital transformation has exploded across the financial markets? And could you speak a bit more about Mexico or? 
Yeah, absolutely. If we talk about Mexico, so Mexico is a really interesting one because they are looking to see how they can leverage uh, initiatives that other areas have used around the world, learn from those mistakes and then implement them successfully. And I think we, I'll say Mexico initially, but actually it's the broader LATAM element of how, how it can be more successfully digitally integrated. You know, and the reality is apps, APIs, so all, the, all the buzz phrases and terms that we hear around the world, but what it actually means is we're able to interconnect more easily and become borderless to a point. As long as you understand and can validate who your customer is, so you know your customer, then it actually enables you to, to leverage further services. And that's before we get involved in things like crypto, DAO, decentralized finance, etc. I think to talk about how our process has changed as digital transformation has come across the, the marketplace and our acquisition, I mean, we shifted from traditional phone calls and meetings in person to digital overnight. You know, we weren't alone in that. That was a global thing. There's a reason the term Zoomification and Zoom fatigue has come about is because we did it through this medium. I mean, as an example, I was hired during the pandemic through a laptop. You know, I didn't meet any of my team. So I joined the company in June 2020. I didn't meet anyone physically until October 2021 in Amsterdam. And then I actually got out to the US last week um, to meet with a customer and some of my colleagues. So we're seeing the shift back. But the reality is everything went from in-person to fully digital. Um, that we onboarded customers, we built businesses, we delivered businesses throughout the pandemic all digitally. We also onboarded and hired another 150 people last year remotely. So we've seen this shift from the way it used to be and was an accepted way of doing business to now actually it's a more accepted way to be digital first. You know, we're seeing now the, the definition where you no longer have to be sat at a desk being monitored. Most roles are now offered in a hybridized manner. In fact, a lot of DevOps roles, in fact, are now remote only to enable you to bring in the talent that you want to do and actually give people that work-life balance as well. It's definitely true. We've also, um, a lot of our clients are based in LATAM and sort of around the LATAM area, and we've seen huge growth in the, you know, adoption of innovative services like open banking, especially um, neo banking, and like you mentioned, crypto and kind of the use of blockchain. Um, so how has digital transformation impacted the user experience um, your services deliver? We've always been of the opinion that actually there's too much tech. You could add digital services to that. You know, if you base everything on technology without having a decent use case or a real problem to fix and an innovative way of doing that, then actually it's tech for too much tech for too much tech's sake. Um, and you're missing out on solving the real issues and being innovative and removing frictions. And that, in fact, could cause client issues. So what we've actually found is um, digital can enable frictionless experiences, but only if it's built around the foundation of resolving a problem, removing a, uh, removing a friction uh, and actually delivering a valid outcome. And I'll give you an example of where this can work and doesn't work. And it's a very simple one. So recently I was at the beach. And at the beach now, you have to park, but it's quite remote. And there is a, a pay center. Um, and it's either cash or they've introduced an app where you can you know, download the app. Here's the number and pay uh, in the cashless format or digital. Great in theory, if you've got a signal. We had no cash, no signal. So we had to risk getting a ticket. Now, we were in a queue with lots of other people who are on different networks who also didn't have a signal. So it just showcases that one example where that example would work really well in a metropolitan area 
but there's plenty of bandwidth, lots of strong signals, etc. And it would have probably taken you know two minutes end to end to download the app, make a payment, be on our way. But that example, that obviously hadn't been thought through about the access to the infrastructure. Therefore, that didn't make my life any easier. What may have been better experience for me would have just been a good old fashioned, he says old fashioned, contactless experience where I could use my card, you know, and there was a wire running out the bottom of the pay station to a terminus somewhere that meant I didn't need a wireless connection. Um, so that's this is where you need to factor in what's the problem you're going to fix and why you're going to fix it. And is that going to be a value to the customer's journey and what they're trying to achieve? If it's not and it adds more steps, then you're not improving anything. You may, in fact, be adding friction to that experience as opposed to bettering it. Definitely. And it's all about kind of reducing how many times someone has to, like, quote unquote, talk to another person, you know, like, and I've been hearing loads of experiences recently, even in the last month, you kind of think like that digital banking's exploded and things are good now from financial services. But my um my personal trainer this morning was 20 minutes late because she had to go to the bank and it's it's constant isn't it oh I had still had to go to the bank and it's like well we didn't have to go to bank in 2020 but now it's 2022 and somehow we're back in the bank um you it's, mentioned- it's a mixture, definitely and I think you'll, yeah. you'll see as well as as we go on because we were forced the pandemic forced everyone there was no choice so it forced acceleration it forced innovation now we're getting back to more of a hybridized version where actually, you know, you just mentioned there with your personal trainer, the expectation is why do I need to go in? Why can't I just do this on a device of some description? And there's got to be a very, very good reason behind it in order to, you know, to validate your time and effort to go to a branch. Yeah, definitely. You mentioned earlier um, that, you know, you've been hired on online on the laptop and that was how you were onboarded what about kind of your client journeys you know what's the typical journey your client goes through as they join your services so typically for our clients we actually de- we actually dive right in quite quickly you know our view is actually to partner with our customers we don't want a client vendor relationship because we feel that a partnership means we're we joined at the hip on outcomes and deliverables that add value. So what we'd actually tend to do is our first engagement with the customer is the problem you've presented to us, have you fully fleshed out that problem? Do you really understand what you want to do? And it's not from a point of arrogance, it's from a point of clarity. So that at the same point, we can both sit down together and say, right, this is the problem we're trying to solve. We both agree. This is the outcome we're working towards. Now, once you refactor that from problem to outcome, suddenly you're both invested in that. And we have what's called a digital traction model, which works on those principles. So the idea is, you know, there'll be a concept, then there'll be a a problem fit, then there'll be a solution fit to create, you know, a a minimum viable product. Um, And then you can go from there into market fit and scale, developing on uh, enhanced capabilities. So if I give you an example, one of our customers, Elabank, was Bahrain's first digital only bank. Um, That went from concept to live launch in 12 months um, through the exact process I just outlined for you. Now, when you factor that in, that also included going to a regulator who had no interest in digital, um, which a lot of regulators around the world, that's their stance because they're risk adverse, because they have to be, you know, they're protecting the consumer. So a lot of our work was not just educating the client and working with them on articulating their value prop, but also going to the regulators to bring them on board and understand this is what this means. This is what we're trying to achieve for the consumer. And those times you've said, no, we don't agree with this or no, you cannot do that. Is that an actual no? Because 
it's just not possible? Or is it you need assistance in understanding and interpreting it in a slightly different way that gives you a level of comfort to rubber stamp against it? Once we got into those dialogues, again, you know, the partnership, not the client vendor relationship, and we were based on an outcome, which was for the consumer, suddenly we could have really interesting conversations that drove us to that outcome. So, you know, coming back to the beginning of the story, we went from, from start to finish in 12 months launching a digital first bank. Interesting. How have you found the war for talent has affected your business? So the war for talent has obviously existed since time began. But the change has been the incentives in order to bring talent and attract talent and then retain, retain talent in your organisation. You know, emotional intelligence has now become a key driver within the industry. Previously, you know, you'd higher salary, best compensation, etc., would would derive the war for talent and winning the war for talent. Now it's shifted to work-life balance, fulfillment in what you're doing and what you're achieving. Um, and authenticity, Does the, the, do the values of the company align with your personal values? You know, I've seen firsthand people offered exceptional amounts of money, but actually they've chosen to join Mobiquity based on culture fit. And secondly, on the vision that we've outlaid for what we're trying to do how we're going to do it and where we want to go. Um, and these are very powerful things that actually enable people to want to join us and stay with us. You know, we also have people leave and that's the right thing. And we're very supportive of that. And they've gone to join the big techs, you know, the Googles, the Apples, the Amazons. What's really interesting is we've had quite a lot of those people return within the 12 to 18 month period to say they really enjoyed their experience there, but they felt valued a lot more strongly at Mobiquity and they felt they could contribute clearly in a much more defined manner with us. So I think we're seeing that the war for talent is going to be around how you make your prospective colleagues feel enabled to make a difference and that they feel valued and that they feel they're learning and adding and contributing to the growth and to the direction of the business. Interesting. How have you, I mean, you kind of touched on it a little bit already, but how have you responded to the change in work environments and how are you enabling your team to deliver to the best of their ability? So I think it's, it's, no, uh, it's no secret. It's been incredibly challenging for everyone around the world. And that doesn't matter if you're the most junior member of the team or the company or the most senior member. You know, we shifted the initial focus from predominantly working in the office. We had hybrid working anyway. But predominantly, it was co-creation in the office together, in the office with our clients, to suddenly everyone's got to work from home. So you're enabling that facility to allow people to work from home. Um, then everyone's worried about you know, their job, global economic collapse, um, educating their children from home while looking after their children while trying to work full time. Um, I think since, you know, being realistic, since I think it's the first time period since World War II where, you know, it was the most continuously stressful time where people's mental health was really under duress um, and, and that is most fragile. And we as a, as a group worked tirelessly to, to enable our colleagues to say, I'm not feeling okay. And it's okay to say you're not feeling okay. Um, and you don't have to have the solution, you know, it's, it's no good if someone is struggling and finding things difficult to say, well, what do you want us to fix? Because they, if they're that stressed, they may not actually be able to give you that answer. What we can say is, well, you know, here's some ideas of how we think we could help. Do you think that could help you? You know, is it more flexible hours? You know, when you have people, you know, especially with young children, 
two people work from home as an example if we split the hours that you work where you one of you could look after the children in the morning for example and, and you work a little later in the evening or sometimes you know here's just some time to just regroup um, and, and take time away we also went through the process of you know, supplying desks to people's homes because they didn't have home offices proper office chairs so that people physically weren't encumbered and, and, and suffering with challenges um, but I think the most important thing and I'll reiterate what I said earlier is is the counselling to say it is okay if you're struggling please let us know and we'll work out how we can help and by not hiding that and bringing that to the surface we actually found we became as an organisation more productive um, and the more flexible we became the more productive we became and I know it seems like a, a, a glib statement to make and, and lots of companies have made that but actually it demonstrated to us that by investing in our in our colleagues well-being um, because it was the right thing to do it actually meant we were able to continuously service our existing customers but actually acquire new customers and hire people during a pandemic so it, it, it's been a unique time put it that way you know what that's actually exactly um what our ceo's done and it's been really really helpful like for me personally i'm um i don't know i don't know if there's something wrong with me but i've loved lockdown like i'm like my mental health's like skyrocketed with kind of not having to go outside and not having to see anyone so it's and it can be hard sometimes to realize that just because one something's one way for you it's not the same for everyone else like so for me um and kind of you know where, where I manage a few people it actually took me a few months to realize oh wait a minute like other people might be lonely and they might not be doing as well as I am but um our CEO has been posting a lot of like LinkedIn sort of posts and everyone sort of follows him and he's been sort of saying about how like he struggled with mental health and how it's okay to talk about mental health and I've had loads of people reaching out to me and being like oh my god I saw our CEO's posts and you know I felt so warm and I feel okay now to talk about it so it does make a big difference like it's, if you're someone sort of more like me who kind of like finds it a bit easier like you can forget that actually these things do matter a lot to to sort of everyone definitely and we're a hugely multicultural organization you know we're very diverse we've got over 55 nationalities working for the company um, and we had some people who had literally just moved into the Netherlands the week before you know the global lockdown in a one-bedroom apartment so no outdoor space they don't know anyone so you know, we really had to think this through as a management team very strongly and focus on the personal side of things um, you know, we, we had like we're not unique. We lots of things. You know, we set up lots of Zoom quizzes and Zoom yoga. You know, Zoom everything or Teams, whichever whichever one you want to choose. Um, but we spent a lot of time investing in that, and you know, even did cookery lessons and all sorts as time went on, just to try and change things up a bit for people. You could argue, obviously, you're still looking using a laptop, but at the time, you know, still Zoomification comes back in. But at the time, it was important. Yeah. And around Christmas, we delivered packages to people and hampers and, and all sorts just to try and, and boost morale. Um, and as I say, I'm not saying it was perfect because it wasn't, but it did definitely make an impact on the positive side. Great to hear. Um, what role would you say resource augmentation providers play at your company and in your department? So resource augmentation was and is and continues to be a big business but it's not something we focus on at our organization so we hire lots of people in um, consistently around the world um, devops you know so we have a cx division a strategy division an engineering division um, a data science division um, a delivery division um, we actually tend to want to make sure that we have the right teams in place 
Um, we do collaborate with certain key players as well, if required. Um, and we have also provided resource augmentation as well as part of our services. But we tend to find um, it's volume-based, not outcome-based, which comes back to the cultural DNA uh, we talked about before. So we've actually focused on opening more delivery centres around the world. Um, and with remote working, which we discussed earlier, um, it actually enables us to do that quite easily and quite quickly. We've got very adept at being able to find the right fit in certain countries around the world and then you know, deploy fully secure laptops, phones, office furniture, etc. So they're up and running and able to be onboarded quite quickly. Um, our focus really, or we're laser focused on, is deliver deliverable outcomes for our customers' customers. And we find the only real way we can successfully deliver that is if we you know, have our own teams working on it, but we augment and we co-create with our customers as well. So that would be the only uh, augmentation you could discuss is more we will pair partner, pair program, partner up with our customers to ensure we deliver the outcomes that we've agreed on. Where do you think digital banking is heading in the next year and what kind of changes do you see coming our way? I mean, that is a huge question. Um, the obvious the obvious answers you can pull out of the air um, um, straight away are you know, Meta and um, Web3. But I think what we're going to see initially is continuous improvements on customer journeys. Um, now lots of the banks, not all, but lots of the banks have set the right technical foundations based on customer outcomes. They can start to leverage understanding their customers, creating capabilities that fit their customers' needs um, and giving them access to financial instruments that they wouldn't have had before. So I'll give you an example. Wealth management obviously is generally a term derived for you know, ultra high net worths. But actually, if you come down the tiers, financial wellness, financial education, financial inclusion through digital channels is actually open to everyone if you can create it in the right way and make it engaging. So suddenly it's not that you've got, you know, six million in assets that you want to manage through a wealth manager, but you may have $100 a month spare or $50 or 10 or 20, it doesn't matter. And by leveraging an ecosystem, a couple of apps, a couple of providers, but through your bank, because they've created a collaborative ecosystem, you can start to understand how the stock market works and you can invest, get returns and build a portfolio um, and maybe you do become an ultra high net worth at some point. I think the key here is democratization of access to financial services. That's going to be the real growth area this year. I think a subset is going to be you know, embedded finance and buy now, pay later. In the Americas, especially, that is really gaining traction. It's it's taken hold massively in, in you know, Europe, Middle East, um, and Australia, Asia Pacific. Um, we're going to see it more and more in the US. Um, and I think the other thing that is still really gaining traction and visibility is ESG. Um, and what I mean with ESG is actually banks are still, in a lot of cases, greenwashing. You know, they're saying they're super carbon efficient and carbon neutral, but they're investing in big oil, just as an example. Um, actually, what's going to happen is, as time goes on, to acquire the next generation of customers who authentically you know, are interested in the environment and also active in making a difference, not just interested, they're going to align to those banks or dismiss those banks that can't prove their ESG credentials. You know, and that's before then we get into, again, financial inclusion or social justice, social governance, et cetera. So these, I think, are the key themes for this year, and we're going to see them accelerate rapidly. But again, the overall thing is going to come back to customer experience. Are you in the right place at the right time for your customer segmentation? Brilliant. 
Are there any tools or technologies that you think will make a big impact over the coming year? I've referenced them several times already, so I'm going to go straight back in with Meta and Web3. Um, and the reason I'm going to say that is um, we're seeing these come up. They've gained immense traction um, and it's leading towards a normalization of digital asset management. Um, you know, embedded finance, which I talked about a moment ago, and wealth management, I feel, are going to be the most likely viable use cases. Um, that said, we are still in the infancy of these things. Um, so I think we're, we're some way away from where someone's going to, have to go, this is exactly what's going to happen and this is exactly how it's going to happen. I think the key drivers behind this are going to be adoption and ease of adoption. You know, if the metaverse, as an example, is still going to be via a three, four, five hundred dollar headset, then by definition, you're removing a lot of people from that. Um, Web3 is slightly different. If you are still able to access it through a device, but it's an enhanced experience, fantastic. Um, you know, and the embedded finance is the obvious play where you go to, um, I don't know, Walmart online, right, as an example, and you're doing your shopping, your grocery shopping, and then you see there's a TV on sale. Uh, instead of $5,000, it's $1,500. Um, and within that app or that experience, you can not only buy that, but you can finance it separately from your grocery shopping. And you can choose how you want to finance that. Maybe it's all on a buy now, pay later split across four payments in eight weeks, or maybe it's split across a personal finance loan where the app has reached out to your bank, pre-approved that, and giving you $500 to it, and the rest is on buy now, pay later, or maybe even split across to your credit card as well. I think that's where we're going to see these, these changes where the consumer gets the options that meet their needs at that moment in time. And then subsequently, if that requirement changes, almost immediately afterwards, they can refactor that and go back and say, do you know what, the way I split this loan for this TV, actually I want more on a credit card and less on buy now, pay later. So you're going to see an acceleration in choice for the consumer. Definitely. A bit more specifically, as we're focused on the Americas, um, I think you're focused on Europe. I'm not sure. Um, where do you see your particular country or region has made some big changes in banking? And how do you see regulations evolving over the coming years in your region? So I'm very fortunate. I'm actually global by definition. So I sit across all markets, which it's quite challenging because they have variances that swing quite wildly, um, but also it's very exciting and a really interesting time to be across that. Um, but I'm based in the UK. So if we start there, so the UK um, open banking and payments initiatives will continue. I mean, you only have to look in the press. There's a new payments company every single day um, that launches with a different version of how it's going to change the world. Um, and that's because there's still a lot to do. Um, we talked earlier, but I think ESG is going to continue to grow. It's a, it's become a bigger deal in the UK. Um, there are fintechs like Meninga um, who are enhancing traditional core banking capabilities with carbon insights for the retail customer side. Um, and then there's another group called Kogo who've launched and they're doing great things at the moment. Um, they're actually directly partnering with NatWest in the UK um, to help SMEs understand their carbon footprint and how they can go net negative or at least improve it significantly to drive us towards net negative by 2026, I think it is. Um, the UK as well, but this actually is probably more global. We're seeing that regulators are working really hard. They've, they've come full circle now to instead of being you know, joining the party late and protecting the consumer after something's happened, they're now, you know, conversely inflecting that and saying, actually, right, we're going to remove those shackles that we have had ourselves and the incumbent banks. Um, and we're going to work with fintechs. Or we're going to try to work with fintechs. We're going to try to understand 
where the new entrances are coming from. And you're seeing that in fintech uh, regulatory sandboxes being open so the two can co-create together and work out how is this going to work? How can we regulate this successfully and securely so the consumer is protected, but without stifling you know, competition, growth, innovation? Um, and I think we're actually slifting, slifting. I think we're actually shifting towards a slightly more enlightened period, which sounds amazing, but bear with me, where you're seeing everyone to remove themselves from starting with a defensive mentality towards actually a co-creation and a way of co-developing together and collaborating together for the greater good. Um, I know that sounds very utopian, but I think the greater good, though, can be access to financial services, maintaining that you know, some people will still need cash, as an example, it can't all be digital. Um, and we mentioned Mexico and LATAM earlier, where open banking is going to grow immensely across that region end to end. Um, crypto is going to become more, um, it will start to become regulated to a point, but it'll actually become more accessible and more interesting to generic players and not just those who are interested in you know, opening an app. I think the days of I'm going to get some cryptocurrency and become a gajillionaire have passed. People have got past that and are less concerned and are now going to start, you know, maybe I buy 10% of a token um, and I can afford that. And if it goes up 50 bucks or down 50 bucks, that's okay. But I can dip my toe in the water of understanding this new decentralized finance world. You mentioned open banking and crypto. Um, what kind of role do you see them having in the future of your business and I guess the future of our industry? So both those subjects are the next stage of evolution for financial services. Um, you know, crypto to fiat currencies. Ultimately, the interesting thing is when you look at cryptocurrencies, they are defined by a fiat currency. So the idea is, you know, it's supposed to be decentralized, but ultimately you say, oh, I have cryptocurrency worth X amount of US dollars because there's got to be a measurement somewhere, a generic, a generic metric we can all understand. Um, but we're going to see that shift slightly. Um, and I think there's, there's a group that's just launched um, by someone I know really well, a lady called Sophie Giobold, who's, you should look her up. Uh, and I advise all listeners to look her up. She's an incredible lady. Um, and she has co-founded a company called Fiat Republic. And they've recently launched a crypto platform with the goal of changing how um, crypto, plat crypto platforms access fiat currencies in the rails. So it's a compliance first platform um, offering fiat as a service, which is really interesting uh, as a concept. And I see that as going to have tremendous growth opportunity. Um, and then from an open banking perspective, success depends on the metrics you look at. From a bank's perspective, using traditional ROI, they would probably say or likely say open banking has not been successful because it may not have generated you know, X returns. However, for the consumer, it's been fantastic because they have access to multiple services by giving their permission once. Um, you know, lending is an obvious example, but personal financial management is a great idea. Um, we're seeing the uptake in principle around the world now. Australia is flying at the moment and really adopting it. North America, so America, Canada, are really starting to look at it and grow it. Um, Japan, Hong Kong are looking at the principles and trying to find a way of adopting it. But I actually speak, I've spoken with the Mexican government a few times on open banking, and they really genuinely want to take the best of open banking lessons learned from the UK Take the lessons learned of how not to do it as well and implement them within Mexico. So you're going to see this grow whether people want it or not from a incumbents perspective. But ultimately, it's, it's a, another glib statement, but it was often said because it had to be said. If you put the customer first, then this makes sense. 
because you have to be able to give the customer access to multiple services when they want. If you put a traditional ROI on it, perhaps not. But the role of the bank is shifting. Um, and this is where I think it's important for banks to understand they have a role, but it may not necessarily be at the front end. It may be at the ownership at the back end of the compliance, the regulation, the, the security, et cetera. Um, and the front ends, the, the marketplace, um, the collaborative, collaborative tools, the new entrants can be the USP, the extra thing that brings customers to you. And as a bank, I'd rather have the relationship and farm out and have uh, capabilities facilitated by a third party than try and play catch up with groups that I just can't, can't compete with. So last question, do you have any advice for anyone who would like to start building a career in digital banking or financial services? Yeah, I'd say I'd reframe it and think of it more as digital experience. You know, we're shifting from place to space. Um, so I'll use you know, Netflix, Disney Plus, Amazon Prime, all these things. They're digital experiences, but they're tied to a financial service. Um, so payments, you know, it might be a bank account. Hopefully it's not a credit card because that's not a great way to go. But the idea is it's facilitated in the background by some type of subscription. So I would say, you know, go for it. Find the thing you're interested in within that. Digital experience is a broad, is a broad gambit. Find a bit you're interested in. Um, the landscape is moving really fast. So I'd be, if I was you, I'd say, you know, be confident to get involved um, because your perspective could redefine where this is going. Um, the, the paradigm has shifted where it used to be experiences, everything. You know, it has to be the 50, 55-year-old banker who knows everything about everything. The world has changed completely. You, know, you can have a 17-year-old girl in her bedroom doing some coding who suddenly is going to redefine how we pay our bills or how we do KYC. Um, but it may be there in Mexico, but it's going to happen in Australia, as an example. So I would say get involved, um, join LinkedIn. And I'm not promoting LinkedIn, even though I am, because it's a great place where you can network, start following people who are interesting, who have the experience that you don't have, who may talk about things that you're not fully up to speed on yet. Um, so be in their sphere, comment, like, share, get involved in the commentary um and go from there really but be brave get involved um and you know i suppose i'd wrap up with saying create your linkedin account reach out to me and i'll connect thanks matt you're um you're actually not the first person who's had that question who said focus on the experience as well so um definitely advice for the listeners thanks so much for joining us matt this no was the great speaking this is the american digital banking podcast hosted by cbqi don't forget to follow us to hear more